Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Part 26, we're going to finish up Revelation 16 tonight. And then we're going to jump into Revelation 17. Let me say a prayer as we get into this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. I pray, God, that you would lead us through this, give us wisdom, show us the meaning of these verses, and we give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. All right. This is Revelation Revealed, part 26, Revelation 16, part 3, Revelation 17, part 1. So we saw... The last time we looked at this, that despite all the suffering that we saw in chapter 16, humanity still refused to repent. We've seen this pattern before. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said of this, I have known people who say, well, if I were afflicted, I might be converted. If I lay sick, I might be saved. Oh, do not think so, Spurgeon says. Sickness and sorrow of themselves are no helps to salvation. Pain and poverty are not evangelists. Disease and despair are not apostles. Look at the lost in hell. Suffering has affected no good in them. He that was filthy, here is filthy, there. He that was unjust in this life is unjust in the life to come. There is nothing in pain and suffering that by their own natural operation will tend to purification. That's a great quote. And I mentioned last time, God does not humble us. We have to humble ourselves. That's why the scripture says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So the mighty hand of God can come upon you And you could say to bring salvation or to inflict pain. But if you don't humble yourself, you will not be humbled. Only you can humble yourself. I remember when my father used to whip me. That's what we call it. I'd get a whipping. Anybody ever gotten a whipping? Your daddy's going to whip you, boy. Dad would say, I'm going to whip you, boy. Go get my belt. I'm going to whip you, boy. I get whippings, right? A lot of whippings, actually. But there were times I said, I'm not going to cry. There was a couple times. Well, there's like one time. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to humble myself, said. I'm not going to humble myself under the mighty hand of Caleb, my father. And so my dad would, and, and you know what? He, he whipped me hard and a lot. My dad didn't play around. He came from southern Arkansas. His dad beat the tarnation out of him. Mom would freak out, turn all the TV on, the water on, the washing machine on. I'm in there, you know. But there came a point where I said, I'm going to resist this. And so I fought humbling myself under the mighty hand of my father. And, uh, you know, I could have held out. But I learned quickly, it's wisdom to give in. (laughs) <laughs> so then I be- became a quick give-inner, you know, like give-in quick. It'll be over quick. So uh, I quit I quit doing I quit resisting. 
But really, it's the same with God. Like, you've got to humble yourself. And that's an act of volition. It's an act of the will. You can choose to humble yourself or you can choose not to. And so here we have people suffering incredible judgment of God. This is literally judgment of God. It's the, vo- the, the vials, the bowls. Literal judgment of God. Severe judgment of God. And yet, they shook their fist at the sky. Ugh. Not going to bow, not going to bow, not going to bow. It's amazing to me. And this is post-rapture. I don't want to get hung up on this, but I kind of am for a minute. This is post-rapture. A lot of people disappeared. There's been this obvious exodus from this dimension. And yet, you know, and things are progressing as Scripture has foretold. And doubtless there are some on the earth that say, isn't this what the preacher was saying? Isn't this what my church taught? Isn't this what the Bible said? And yet, shaking their fist at the sky. No, I will not bow. It's amazing to me. But that's what we see in the book of Revelation. So really, humanity does not change a whole lot even after the rapture of the church. It's flesh, resistant, rebellious. We'll see a lot of that tonight. Chapter 16 is a chapter of greats. It describes great evil, the great city, the great Babylon, which we're going to look at in great detail tonight. It describes great tools of judgment, great heat, a great river dried up, a great earthquake, great hell, and great plagues. So here you have the judgment of God in greats. It describes a great God, his great voice. Uh, It's described as being loud. The Greek word for loud is is the same as great. And so it's it's the, the great voice of God. And then we also see the the great day of which is a victory, a great day of victory for the Lord. In 1614. So now we're in chapter 17. Revelation 17 and then on into 18. We're going to deal with some of the most controversial aspects of this series as we delve into Mystery Babylon. But like I've said over and over in our expositional series, We've got to do something with these verses. We can't just gloss over them, pretend they don't exist. And we know that from the beginning of the book of Revelation, there is a blessing pronounced when, on us as we dig into these words. There's a blessing that comes from diving into the book of Revelation that's unlike any other book in the Bible. There is no specific blessing, it says, for diving into the book of Ephesians, for instance, or Isaiah, for instance. But Revelation, at the beginning, we saw it. There is a blessing. There's an empowerment that comes as we dive into these words, as difficult as they may appear to be. Now, we've touched on Babylon and Revelation revealed already. I mean, we saw it in chapter 16, the great city, great Babylon. And we touched on it. It was alluded to way back in chapter 2 with Thyatira. Remember the seven churches of Asia Minor? 
we looked at Thyatira. And if you'll remember, at one time, Thyatira was known, the city was known by another name. It was known by another name because Babylon had been conquered by the Medes and the Persians and the religious system and the religious priests that were there moved, migrated, moved around and eventually made their way into the area where Thyatira is or was and the name at that time in an early era of Thyatira was Semiramis. And Semiramis, as we looked at this, Semiramis was the mother of Nimrod. Now, Semiramis, and you're going to start to see some some connections here. It's fascinating. It really is fascinating. But Semiramis has uh, other names because you, it, the, the world was Hellenized and the Greeks had their influence and and, and there were uh, the, the Hebrews and, and the languages would, would shift some of these names around. The Babylonians used wording that said she was a, a gift of the sea and, and Ishtar was associated with Semiramis and she was a gift of the sea. They said that she, she swept onto the shore from the sea as an egg and then she hatched. Well, think about this. Just right off the bat, when you hear Ishtar and egg, that's similar to what? Easter. Nobody got it. No, you did. You were just scared to say it. Easter and eggs, right? There's these connections, these ancient mythological legendary, and historic connections. So you have Semiramis, or Semiramis, who is the, the, the mother of Nimrod. We've looked at Nimrod. Nimrod's probably uh, just a title, but, but the original guy who wore that title, the, the name Nimrod means a hunter, not just of animals, but a hunter of men. And Nimrod is the guy who built the Tower of Babel. But Semiramis was his mother, but the historical perspectives, and I can give you quotations from some of the ancient historians, the, the legends that surround Nimrod and Semiramis is that Nimrod and Semiramis not only were mother and son, but Nimrod and Semiramis had a son, Tammuz, who was said to die, depends on the legend that you read, the, the sources, but during the winter solstice and to resurrect in the summer solstice. So you have this idea of resurrection. He was born on December 25th. You have a lot of connections here with religion. Everybody say religion. Nimrod founded Babel along with his mother. And we read the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. This was the beginning of what we know as Babylon. Nimrod was the world's first global dictator, an antichrist. He led the world in a rebellion against the true and living God. And his control was really political and religious. We see him using politics and religion. There's this mixture that he used. Now, Just by way of review, you know, Noah, when he got off the boat, 
the Lord told them the same thing that God told Adam and Eve. He said, spread out across the earth, fill it up, be fruitful and multiply. So that was the commandment of God. Same thing he told Adam and Eve, spread out, spread across the face of the earth, be fruitful and multiply. So you have Noah, Mrs. Noah, Ham, Sham, Japheth and their kids. They're supposed to spread out across the earth. Well, they began to have children, and as they had children, rather than spreading out across the face of the earth, they assembled at the valley of Shinar. Now, Shinar, the Hebrew for Semiramis, is, is, it starts with the beginning of that word, like Shamar, which is really where the valley of Shinar gets its name. It's akin to Semiramis. The Tower of Babel was in the valley of Shinar, And check this out, rather than spreading out across the face of the earth, filling up, which was the plan and the purpose of God, there was a leader named Nimrod who rose up. He's mentioned in the scripture, and he founded the Tower of Babel. He was the guy leading the way in this, we're not going to do what you say, God. We've got another idea. Now, the Tower of Babel, what is the purpose of the Tower of Babel? The Lord came down and said, I'm going to confuse the languages Because if they continue doing what they're doing, they will succeed. I mean, what can be withheld from the imagination of a unified humanity? That's that's what the Lord said. Now, here's the deal. The children of Israel, or not the children of Israel, but humanity at that time, would never have built a tower that literally would be high enough to reach God, right? I mean, it wouldn't reach into heaven. Wouldn't reach. We've sent spaceships, rocket ships up into the clouds and into space. We have spacecraft now that have gone into interstellar space, and they've not run into heaven. If Voyager 1 hasn't, then I'm telling you, Tower of Babel wouldn't either if they were still building to this day. They'd run out of air like it's not going to happen. The idea was they wouldn't succeed in reaching heaven. The idea is that The plans and purposes of God would be thwarted. The plans and purposes of God required they move out. They were rebelling against God. The idea is this. Nimrod was saying, God is bad. God is mean. God is precocious. God wants to destroy humanity. He's not a good God. And if he ever pulls this kind of stunt again, we will save ourselves. We'll crawl up into this tower. We are capable of saving ourselves. I believe you can make a strong case that that was what was taking place at Babel. Just like Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. It was a type of religion. Man over here under Nimrod's leadership is saying, we can save ourselves. We don't need God. We've got another way. We've got a better way. And so here you have this, again, political and religious system that Nimrod founded. And Nimrod and his mother taught humanity how to save themselves via the Tower of Babel by way, check this out, not just of the tower, that's the physical structure, but they had systems and processes in place with false gods, goddesses, rituals, rites, religious paradigms. So post-flood, the Tower of Babel became the center of, Listen to this terminology of spiritual fornication. You probably didn't expect that word. But it's coming 
into the text as we read into Revelation 17. The Tower of Babel became the center of spiritual fornication, ground zero of all spiritual fornication, adultery, rebellion. One writer, Merrill Tinney, called Babylon the place of organized hostility toward God. And it was primarily expressed through religion. Karl Marx said it, right? Religion is the opium of the people. Or religion is the opium of the masses. The opiate of the masses. So, really, the Bible is a tale of two cities. Jerusalem and Babylon. Babylon's mentioned over 287 times in your Bible. Second, only to Jerusalem. They're contrasted some 200 times in your Bible. Babylon became synonymous with organized rebellion, organized false religion, a false religious system united against the plans and purposes of God. From Babylon and with the ways of Babylon, the world's first dictator led his rebellion against Almighty God. Nimrod did that. And we're going to see from Babylon, with the ways of Babylon, the religion of Babylon, the world's last dictator will lead his rebellion. Interestingly, Babylon is mentioned twice in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. So if it's the Bible, a story of two cities, well, Revelation is the story of three women. Revelation 12 mentions the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the Christ. We looked at that. Revelation 19, which we're not to yet, mentions the wife of the Lamb who has made herself ready. We know her in other places as the bride of Christ. But in between these two is Revelation 17, 18, 16, that tells the story of the woman who rides the beast, and she is known as Mystery Babylon. So let's look at verse 1 and read through verse 3. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So, here's one of the seven angels who poured out the seven bowls, and he comes to John and begins to talk to him, shows him some stuff. He speaks of the judgment of the great harlot, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Well, we've seen that in the book of Revelation, some of these difficult passages that we try to figure out, if you just read a little bit further, it'll explain what it's talking about. So when we look at this, this judgment of the great harlot, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, if we read a little further, we will see the interpretation of these things. So who is the woman? Who's the beast? Well, 
We've seen the beast before, 13.1 of Revelation. The beast is the Antichrist. And in Revelation 17, we have a woman and the Antichrist in a partnership. There's this relationship between them. The woman's riding on the beast. And so she's called the great harlot. Now, I'm going to take my time through this because I don't want to be misunderstood and I want to be careful. I want to be precise with this. But she's called the great harlot. It's, it's fascinating, right? She's not just a harlot. She's a great harlot. In the Greek, the word is mega. She's a mega harlot. She's a great harlot. And again, this is in reference not to she has a brothel set up somewhere, and this is physical. This is speaking of spiritual fornication. This is speaking of false religion, which throughout the Bible is associated with Babylon, finds its roots in ancient Babylon. Verse 18 says that she's a city, this woman, a city. So here we have a city associated with great harlotry, spiritual fornication, and we'll see it's on an epic worldwide scale. This is not localized to Asia Minor or to Iraq where Babylon was located. And notice, she, along with the beast, sits on many waters. What does that mean? Well, verse 15 tells us that the many waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, this woman influences the whole wide world. And how does she do it? She influences the influencers of the whole wide world. Notice it says, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Notice that. The kings of the earth, the prelates, the presidents, the parliamentarians, the kings of the earth, the power brokers committed fornication. And as a result, they made the inhabitants, those that were under them, to be drunk. Notice the wording, drunk, intoxicated with the wine of her fornication. The idea is this. She gets the kings intoxicated. She gets the kings drunk on her deception. And they commit fornication with her. And then they cause... The people under them, the world becomes intoxicated. Karl Marx, again, religion, and I might add it like this, false religion has dominated the world since time immemorial, right? It's dominated. The world. No matter where you go, you find religion. And folks, I got to tell you, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I believe that book, and I believe that book is so powerful. I've said it. I've got to say it again. 
I used to think that if I taught a Bible study and somebody, as I was teaching it to them, told me that they didn't believe the Bible is the Word of God, I was, it was a conundrum. I remember, I'll never forget it, Shreveport, as a kid, as a young man, and this, this girl that was older than me, she, she was like, I want to know the truth, Donovan. You seem to believe the Bible. Like, teach me what you know. I, and, and I was trying to share with her. It was this girl. She, her father owned a business on Kings Highway in Shreveport and had a Jewish background. I was trying to communicate to her. And in that conversation, she basically said, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Your Bible, I don't believe it's the Word of God. And I was stuck. I'm like, then you're going to hell. How can I teach you the truth if you don't believe the source of my truth? Well, man, it was a conundrum. And later, I thank God, I realized you don't have to believe it. If you'll listen to me tell the stories, though, you're going to have to fight to not believe it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. If somebody that does believe it begins to communicate it, there's a spiritual force to it. We're not in this alone. He leads and guides into all truth. What is all truth? All truth is right here. It's not figments of my imagination. It's not precocious. It's not prejudice. It's it's what God has declared to be truth. And as we dive into truth, He reveals truth to us. You don't have to say, I believe this is the Bible. The Bible was written for people who don't believe so they could become believers. Were you born a believer? No. It's ridiculous. Somewhere you began to believe. Faith came. But it came by hearing from somebody who declared that word to you. How can they believe in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? So then... Faith comes by hearing. Never discount the power of sharing the word with somebody. I don't care how backslidden they are. I I don't care. They say, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in God. I'm an agnostic. I'm I'm atheistic. I'm this. I'm that. I'm the other. I'm these other religions. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Listen to these stories. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And they're going to have to fight not to believe. And then we also have spiritual weapons that are disposed. We can pray the God of this world who blinded the minds of those. Father, I come against that spirit that blinds them in Jesus' name, that religious spirit in Jesus' name. Pray that you'd, you'd lift that back. Let them get just a moment of clarity. Let faith come. Father, I break that. And, and we have those spiritual weapons too when it comes to our witness and the testimony of the Word of God. But the Word, folks, the Word, man, the Word is so powerful. And religion has darkened humanity. The the God of this world has blinded humanity for eons. How? With religion. With religion. To this day. And I've got to hurry. But but let me, I'm just talking to you from my heart. I'm off my notes here. But I'm going to tell you, like, the conundrum that we face is that in American, this has shifted, but, but we live it really, we're shift, we've shifted into, it's slow here in the Bible Belt and the buckle of the Bible Belt, et cetera, but we've shifted into a, really into a, the experts say, into a post-Christian world. 
Like everybody's not a Christian. In the olden days, everybody was a Christian. And now, everybody's not a Christian. I mean, in America. We have this American thing. Everybody was a Christian, but they really weren't. But, you know, everybody culturally was a Christian. And, uh, and now we're in a post-Christian world. To me, that's different than when the church was first born and there were no Christians. There were pagans and there were, you know, uh, Jews and there were, uh, you know, all kinds of different religions, Zoroastrians and all kinds of stuff. But the deal is they were preaching this brand new, quote, unquote, religion. God sent his son, died on a cross to save humanity. They were preaching this new concept, which all of the religions had their own creation stories, etc. But it was a challenge for them. Well, today in our modern world, with the when everybody was a Christian, it was like the thing is there was so much, bottom line, what I'm trying to say, there was so much false mixed in with the truth. It, it muddied the water. And so what I'm saying is, as bad as that was, now people are like, well, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. We're in a post-Christian world. But I want to tell you that I believe, my personal conviction is, that it doesn't matter if we're in a pre-Christian world, a quote-unquote Christianized world, or a post-Christian world. The truth is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The church is the church. And, and the, the church is not less powerful today than it was 2,000 years ago. I would argue it's more powerful because there are more of us today just in the population. And so I would say it doesn't matter. Don't be depressed that somebody's like, well, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. No, listen to the stories again. Take a look at it with fresh eyes. Maybe what you had was uh, some deception mixed in with some truth. And maybe God is sifting the junk out, so you, the bones out, so you can get a hold of the meat, man. Because there is power in the truth of the Word of God. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Because I could be depressed as a preacher. Like, well, I'm trying to reach people that are already Christians. Well, as we... We started LifePoint realizing it's possible to reach people who are not Christians. We found a bunch of non-Christians really quick. But then there are those who are unchurched, but there, there are those who are de-churched. That's a target right there. Hey, you, you may have tried, but well, I'm telling you, listen to these stories again. Come at it with fresh eyes. Well, here we have... This, this ancient Babylonian influence that influenced generations and still influences today. So going back to ancient times, as we'll see, um, what I'm saying to you, the deception that even affects modern Christianity, is still, it's got a Babylonian root. So who is this woman? Look at verses 4 through 5. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great. 
the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, you may notice that in your Bible, if you're looking at it in your Bible, I don't know if it's that way on the screen. No, the font's kind of the same there. But all, the mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the, of the earth, that's all in caps because it wasn't the original. It was emphasized. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So this woman, this, this mega harlot, she exerts worldwide influence. She's done so from ancient times, and she's arrayed with a particular color of clothing. Notice, she was arrayed in purple and scarlet. So it's recognizable. She's recognizable by the colors of her clothing, the, the clothing that she wears. And, and it's a hint, a clue. This is a hint, a clue as to her identity. She wears purple and scarlet or purple and red. Now, purple was the imperial color of the Roman Empire. If, uh, if you'll remember, uh, probably from some plays that you've seen or some movies you've watched, when you see the Roman Senate, they're wearing a, you know, a, a toga, a robe. But if they're a senator, it's going to have a scarlet uh, stripe on it of some kind. It was the imperial color of Rome. So I think that comes into play. Rome was the authority in John's day. Yet she's called Mystery Babylon. I think it's relevant, but she's called Mystery Babylon. Let's continue. Not only that, she's also adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In other words, there's a flashiness an opulence about her, gold, precious stones, and pearls. Officially, when she's on full display, she's flaunting wealth, fabulous wealth, fabulous riches, which only makes sense because she's partnered up with the kings, the princes of the earth, the power brokers of the earth. There's wealth here, riches here. Not only that, she has a golden chalice, a cup in her hand made of gold. And, and it's filled, the, the language is so harsh. The, the, the chalice is filled with abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Again, this is spiritual. This speaks of the deception, the rebellion. It's an intoxicating brew and it intoxicates the heavy hitters and through it she intoxicates the entire world. We saw this in Genesis 11. With, with ancient Babylon, and then we see written on her forehead a confirmation. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations that are in the earth. Wow. So we get this identity. She is Babylon. Now, there are some that argue that she is the historical city of Babylon, and that that city, which is in Iraq, if you'll remember, Saddam Hussein, attempted to rebuild Babylon. If you'll remember, our troops went into ancient, to, to modern Babylon, which was built on ancient Babylon, and, and Saddam had palaces there. He was trying to reconstruct ancient Babylon. He wanted to be the new Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's trying to restore ancient Babylon, and he began to build it. We had troops that went in there, took pictures. We got all kind of, uh, you know, uh, we, we took over the, the place, and there are some that say that that historical city has to be rebuilt. 
before this takes place in the book of Revelation. But I don't believe that's the case because her name is not just Babylon, but what? Mystery Babylon the Great. Mystery Babylon. So I don't think it's necessarily that particular city. But there is a city like ancient Babylon that is a headquarters of the mysteries of Babylon with the mother of God, the queen of heaven, as she became known, Semiramis, Ishtar, Nimrod. And you see this throughout Greek mythology. It's, it's, it all comes, it all stems from the same. Mesopotamian theology, Babylonian theology, it, it all comes up into the mythology of many of the ancients. And we see the, the, the gold, the pearls, the opulence. She's the mother of harlots. Notice that. The mother, the mother of harlots. So she's a great harlot, and she has offspring who follow in her footsteps. So who could this be? Well, let's look at verse 6. I saw the woman drunk. Notice this now. With the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Great amazement. This is John looking ahead 2,000 years, 1,000 years, way beyond where he was. And he sees a worldwide religious system that's in bed with the kings of the earth that has brought about delusion of truth. And so I want to get into it. There are some that say this woman is the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, like even saying that, Listen, I know where I am. Como se va? Right? I'm in Louisiana, and uh, I'm in South Louisiana. I'm south of I-10. In North Louisiana, the Baptists reign. In South Louisiana, the Catholics reign, right? And uh, so I know where I am. I, I, I understand where we are. But I want to look, and we'll do this next time, I want to look at, the idea of the Roman Catholic Church coming into play. I want to look at the Protestant Church. Vatican II, which is one of the most influential councils of modern Catholicism, incredibly influential. John Paul II was like heavily influenced by Vatican II as well as Francis and a lot of the others. But the idea is this, Vatican II, specifically called the the churches in the Protestant movement, the daughters of the Roman church. And so one day they're going to come home. They're all going to come home. So I want to deal with this idea of who is this woman and what does she stand for? Is she the Roman Catholic church? What about these daughters of her? Who are they? And as we go here, I'm just going to give a disclaimer right now. 
I, I have no, I'm not trying to stir up controversy. I'm not trying to stir up trouble. It is what it is. We're going to dive into it. We're going to look at some historical things. We're going to look at some opposing viewpoints. We're going to dive into it. But, but I'm just going to tell you right now, there is, there is so much confusion when it comes to Christianity that it is not coincidental. It is strategic. It has been the enemy's plans all along going back to the valley of Shinar to stop the Lord from getting his work done in the work of the Christ. Psalm 2, why do the heathens rage? But the Lord laughs and says, you can't stop me. I will get my mission accomplished. And I think it's fascinating. John said, I looked and I was amazed. I was blown away. I'm going to tell you something that he saw. I believe he saw. He saw people who called themselves Christians who had martyrs' bloods on their hands. You call yourself a Christian and you've got the blood of the martyrs on your hands. We're going to look at Constantine. We're not going to get boring and dive into boring history, but we're going to dive into some stuff. And we're going to look at Revelation 17, Revelation 18, and we're going to try to figure out what these complicated words are saying. Are you with me? You interested in that? Why not, huh? We need to go there. And, and listen, don't go tell your Catholic friends that uh, come out and hear Pastor Donovan as he crucifies the Catholic Church. Don't say that. Don't do that. They're welcome to come. And I will not be crucifying, quote, unquote, you know what I'm saying, because there are a lot of good Catholic people that, that don't have anything to do with what I'm talking about as far as there's no malice, evil on their part. But I'm just telling you there are roots that are deep, brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not, I'm not Catholic. In some ways I am because the word means universal. And I'm not Protestant. In some ways I am because I protest some things, right? I'm, I'm a Christian. And if I could be specific with it, I'm a Christian in the apostolic sense. The, the same message the apostles preached and what to do with it. Brothers and sisters, that's the only thing that purifies us right there. Because the church councils, those people were jacked up. We'll talk about it. And the Protestants were too. Martin Luther put death sentences on people, killed people. The Anabaptists, Calvin and Luther killed the Anabaptists. The Baptists, they killed them. The Roman Catholic Church was killing all kinds of people. Everybody's declaring war on each other. The Crusades, are you kidding me? Some wicked, vile stuff done in the name of Jesus. We're going to dive into it. Amen. Stand with me right now. Amen. But I'll tell you, in spite of all that, and I don't have all the answers, I don't pretend to. I'll tell you that in a heartbeat. You sit in the Bible study with me. But I'll tell you this one thing I have learned I got some core values. God is good. 
Nimrod was wrong. God is good. He's on my side. He loves me. He proved it through a cross. When I was unlovable, he loved me anyway. I I put my teeth into that, y'all. I love my Jesus. I've had a revelation. He's good. He loves me. He died on the cross for me. That's why I repented. That's why I was filled with his spirit. That's why I was baptized in his name. I've come to realize he's a good God. That's not religion. That's an apostolic approach to the Jesus message. And we know those guys had the truth. So we'll dive into that. We'll get into it, stir it up a little bit. And God's going to bless and God's going to move powerfully in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness and for your goodness. Who are we that you are mindful of us? God, we're just here on the corner of Airline and Daigle. We just got home from work. We've been busy. But, God, you have taken time, God, to show us some truth. You've taken time, God, to send your Holy Spirit. You've taken time to fill this place with your your presence, God. You've taken time to let us know that we are loved. We are not alone. You are on our side. There's more that be with us than are against us. Lord, you can move mountains. Anything is possible. And we thank you for it. We are grateful for it in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.